When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What? I'm your host, Tom Kearns, and welcome back to the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. Episode 7, The Augustinian Mission. Apologies for there being no episode last week. I recorded one, but to be honest, I wasn't very happy with it. I don't want to give you anything that I'm not satisfied with, so I decided that I would take some elements of it that I liked and rework them into this episode, which I hope makes up for the delay. This week, we will begin the story of the conversion of England. This is an important story, since it is in several ways a turning point in Anglo-Saxon history. Obviously, it saw a change in the religious culture of the Anglo-Saxons, but more than that, it also made possible the writing down of laws and charters which allow us to discuss the people and events of Anglo-Saxon history in greater detail than before. It also coincides with major economic growth throughout England, seen in the beginnings of Anglo-Saxon coinage and the emergence of key sites of production and commerce. The conversion is also one of the main topics of the first work of English history, Bede's Ecclesiastical History of the English People. As I will discuss in this episode, and in much more detail in a future Bede-focused episode, Bede's narrative often leaves out many important details, but it is nevertheless an invaluable source for the history of England between the conversion and its completion in 731. Given how many people and places there are in the story of the conversion, I've opted to proceed in much the same way that Bede does, by focusing on the conversion of particular peoples, rather than on England as a whole. To this, I will add more depth in historical information than Bede provides. In this episode, besides introducing the mission as a whole, I will focus on the history of both the kingdoms of Kent and Essex, in the late 6th and early 7th century. The mission of Augustine, the first Archbishop of Canterbury, to England was undertaken at the will of Pope Gregory the Great, who served as Bishop of Rome from 590 to 604. Gregory is generally regarded as one of the most important of all popes for his profound moral and pastoral writings, as well as for his role in promoting the monastic vision of St. Benedict to Western Europe as a whole. In England, though, He holds special place as the Apostle of the English, a designation that derives particularly from Bede, who was greatly inspired by Gregory's writings and sermons. Bede offers a probably fanciful story of Gregory seeing a group of blonde Anglian slaves in Rome and being so struck by their handsomeness and the similarity of the words angle and angel that he resolved to see them converted to Christianity. To undertake this, he chose a monk from Rome named Augustine, and sent him with a party of priests to evangelise England. The result is the first solid date in Anglo-Saxon history, 597, 
the year that Augustine landed on the Isle of Thanet in Kent and undertook to convert the local ruler and his people. That ruler was King Athelbert, who Bede tells us was the overlord of all England at the time. It's not entirely clear whether Athelbert was chosen as the recipient of the mission, or if Thanet was just a convenient place to land after a cross-channel voyage. Bede's story about slave boys raises some problems, since the people of Kent weren't Anglian, but were, if you may recall, a mix of Jutish and Frankish. But there's no reason to base our view on that story alone. There were considerable reasons why a prospective mission would choose Athelbert's Kent as the starting place. As noted several times in previous episodes, Kent had strong ties to Merovingian Francia. Indeed, Athelbert himself probably had Frankish ancestry, since his father, Aormanric, had a name, the first part of which, Aorman, is a common component of Frankish names, but is quite unusual in Old English ones. Athelbert's wife, Bertha, was also Frankish, being a daughter of the most powerful Merovingian king at the time, Chilperic. Not only was she a Frankish princess, thus giving Athelbert close ties to the powerful continental ruler, but she also shared her father's Christianity. We are told that part of her marriage contract was that she would be permitted to continue practising her faith despite Athelbert's paganism. To this end, Athelbert allowed her to bring a bishop to serve as her personal chaplain and permitted her to use a small Roman church in Canterbury. Thus, it would have been possible for Augustine to arrange a reception by Athelbert while travelling to the Channel, and he could expect a somewhat warm welcome due to the pledge made by the king to respect his wife's religion. Augustine landed on the Isle of Thanet, and it was there that the king came to meet the missionaries. Bede relates that Athelbert preferred to meet them in the open air, out of a fear that they would cast a spell on him. The king and his nobles, called Yasiths in Old English, heard a sermon from Augustine, and were convinced that the men meant no evil, but the king was reluctant to convert to the new faith, since he didn't want to risk unrest by forsaking the ancient traditions of his people. He gave the missionaries permission to live and worship in an ancient church dedicated to St. Martin in the chief Kentish settlement of Canterbury. This is the same church that he allowed his wife and her bishop to use. This church had been built during the Roman occupation, and still serves as a church today. Bede doesn't give us any indication of how Augustine convinced Athelbert to finally convert, only that he was eventually won over, along with many of the Kentish people, through his preaching, virtuous life and miracles. This general lack of detailed information is actually a persistent problem in Bede's account of Augustine's mission. He doesn't seem to have had very much information to work on. Bede collected his material from churches across England, including Canterbury itself, but the image of Augustine that we get from the material is quite insubstantial. The closest thing we get to an anecdote about his career is the account of his meeting with the bishops of the British somewhere along the banks of the River Severn. In this story, though, it is striking that we get events from the Britons' perspective and not from Augustine's, especially since, as I will explain shortly, the image of Augustine that comes from this story is not entirely favourable. This lack of material accounts for why the mission is not often called the Augustinian mission, but is more often called the Gregorian mission, since we have much more material from which to discern Gregory's intentions for the English, and very little to say much more about Augustine than that he was the first Archbishop of Canterbury. Returning to the meeting with the British bishops, though, this event introduces one of Bede's main interests, the correct calculation of Easter. Bede held that the practice of the Roman Church was the authoritative one, 
and that deviation from it was a seed of immorality and disunion. The churches of the Britons and the Irish calculated Easter in a different manner than the Romans did, and thus they were singled out by Bede for a special condemnation. In the case of the British, this failing is emblematic of countless other faults that Bede describes to them. The aim of Augustine's meeting with the bishops was to correct their errors in calculating Easter, to get their recognition of his place as their archbishop, and to enlist their help in evangelising the English. Following from the image of the faithless Britons that he acquired from Gildas, Bede casts the British bishops as stubborn and proud. The bishops refuse all of Augustine's requests, which Bede presents as their preferring their own traditions over the universal truth, which echoes Gildas's comments that the Britons have always been the most stubborn and contrary of people. After a test of divine favour, in which the Britons failed to heal a blind man while Augustine miraculously restored his sight, it was agreed that a second meeting should be held once the Britons had consulted with their people. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favourite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is at this second meeting that we get a somewhat negative image of Augustine. Bede relates that the British bishops went to a renowned holy man who told them that if Augustine stood up to greet them when they arrived at the council, then they should follow Roman custom, since its representative showed humility. If he did not stand, though, but remained seated, then they should reject Roman practice on account of the arrogance of its representative. When the Britons arrived, Augustine did not stand, and they refused any compromise. This story is odd since it draws attention to apparent arrogance on Augustine's part, which contrasts with Bede's intentions. For his purposes, it would better suit that Augustine acted with humility, but was rejected by the proud Britons. Yet the Britons' anger is somewhat justified, since Augustine should have shown them respect due to their episcopal rank. Bede redeems Augustine by pointing out that he warned the Britons of punishment for their repudiation, which eventually came when Athelfrith, pagan king of Northumbria, massacred the British priests at Chester, at some point between Augustine's death in 604 and Athelfrith's death in 616. This prophecy feels somewhat forced, and it may well be that Bede made the link to Athelfrith as a means of redeeming Augustine after the implications of pride that came from the British story. In Bede's telling, the Britons had nothing to do with the conversion of the English. In fact, Bede held that the Britons refused to evangelise the Anglo-Saxons, this, in his mind, was a massive sin on their part, and only further justified their subjugation. In reality, we can't know how involved the Britons were or weren't with the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons. It's not clear to what extent Christianity was already established in Roman Britain. There is some archaeological evidence for its entrenchment among the nobility, such as the Christian symbols found on the mosaic at Hinton St Mary's, as well as the golden Christian jewellery found in the Newton Horde. References in Bede and in the continental sources to bishops among the Britons also suggests some kind of church hierarchy had endured among them, but it is very difficult to say how widely disseminated this Christianity was. Intermarriage between Britons and Saxons seems to have occurred, 
For example, in the earliest royal dynasties of Wessex and Mercia, where British names are quite common. But this doesn't seem to have resulted in conversion. In both cases, the kings apparently espoused Anglo-Saxon paganism, and were only later converted. Certainly, Christianity was established among the British elites, and it may have been established enough in society as a whole to justify the creation of ecclesiastical hierarchy. If Bede did get the story of the council with the Britons from a British source, then presumably he claimed that the Britons had bishops and monasteries based on the memory of the Britons themselves. While this may well have led to some conversion through intermixing, the evidence for this is extremely scant, and the trend instead seems to be for British peoples to adopt Anglo-Saxon practices. So, the Britons wouldn't help Augustine. For support, he had to turn to Pope Gregory, and also to the church at Arles, which had helped him on his journey to England. Bede preserves several letters sent by Gregory in response to questions by Augustine, which include things like how closely related spouses could be, and what should be done with pagan temples. It is in these letters that Gregory sets out his vision for the church in England. He envisioned a church with two archbishops, one at York and another at London. In reality, the archbishopric was established in Athelbert's chief city of Canterbury, since London was at that time controlled by the Kingdom of Essex. In 604, the King of Essex, Sabert, was converted to Christianity, and it was in that same year that the priest Melitus was made Bishop of Essex, with his seat being in London but the archiepiscopal seat of Canterbury was already established by then, and Augustine had already received papal recognition as the Archbishop of Canterbury, so London would have to stay just a simple bishopric. With the conversion of Sabert in 604, two kings had converted, but in both cases, their sons and heirs remained pagan, a fact that would come back to haunt the missionaries. Before touching on that, though, what was the impact of the conversion in the southeast? There isn't much documentation about Essex, so we're forced to focus mainly on Kent. Here the impact seems to have been quite profound, but not as major as we would perhaps expect. Bede tells us that Athelbert composed laws modelled on Roman practice, the first written laws of Anglo-Saxon England. Athelbert's law code survives, but they are not obviously Roman, despite what Bede says. Instead, they seem more comparable to the laws of the Merovingian Franks, due to their being explicitly the product of a king in council with his nobles. The content of the laws is also much more Germanic than Roman, since they are based mainly on restricting the violence of blood feuds. Where Athelbert differs from Frankish practice is in the fact that his laws are written in the vernacular, rather than in Latin. The code is also essentially Christian, especially in the prominence it gives to punishment of offences against the church, but it also does not go so far as to outlaw paganism. Instead, its focus is entirely secular. It's also possible that Augustine introduced the Landegrants to Anglo-Saxon England. As discussed in the last episode, the Landgrant was one of the cornerstones of the Anglo-Saxon royal system. While all the grants claiming to be written by Athelbert are forgeries, the diversity of practices among the earliest authentic charters seems to suggest that they were introduced sometime before the late 600s. This is entirely speculative, though, given that no authentic charters survive from before this date. England more widely began to undergo notable changes around the time of the conversion. By giving compensation payments in shillings, the laws of Athelbert allude to the use of coinage by around 600. 
these may well have been in the form of imported coins, since the earliest Anglo-Saxon coins do not appear in, in the archaeological record until the reign of Athelbert's son Eadbald in the 620s. A hoard buried at Crondal in approximately 640 shows the prevalence of foreign coins, and the degree to which early Anglo-Saxon mints modelled their work on that of the Merovingians. It's also around this time that we see the emergence of the major coastal trading emporia, called Wicks in Old English. Some smaller trading posts had emerged in Kent early in the 7th century at places like Dover and Sandwich. Larger Wicks, though, began to grow as the century progressed, with the major ones such as Southampton, Ipswich and Aldwych having emerged by the mid-7th century. To supply these trading posts, production also had to increase, and this is visible in the various production sites from across England. These also attracted foreign trade, such as at Flixborough in Lincolnshire, which yields up a treasure trove of goods from across Britain and Europe. It's impossible to tell whether this economic boom is at all related to the conversion, but it must have applied pressure for kings and nobles to adopt a new religion, since the most wealthy continental rulers with whom they traded were all Christian. The wealth that came with it is also seen in the signs of Kentish cultural hegemony that also begin to appear around this time. In the Saxon and Anglian kingdoms around Kent, we begin to see local customs of dress be replaced by new forms modelled on Kentish practice. The impression is that in Athelbert, the missionaries had found a powerful ally at a time when new regions were opening up to them. Augustine died in 604 and was replaced by Lawrence. Things continued to go smoothly with the conversion of Essex. With the deaths of both Athelbert and Sebert in 616, though, things took a turn for the worst. The heirs to their kingdoms had not converted, and all pursued reactions against the church. The kings openly practised paganism, and Eadbald, Athelbert's son, married his stepmother, which was a sin in the eyes of the church. In the face of this adversity, the mission crumbled. The missionaries began to leave Britain, and it was only after Lawrence had a vision of St Peter scourging him for his cowardice that he resolved to stay. It is not clear what this achieved, though. Bede claims that Lawrence was able to convert Eadbald, but a papal letter exists which suggests that Eadbald did not convert until later, during the Episcopacy of Justice, between 624 and 631. There is no way to prove which is correct. It is certain, though, that Eadbald did eventually convert to Christianity, and managed to secure the future of the church in Kent. In Essex, things took longer to work out. The sons of Sebert were killed in battle with Kinegils of Wessex, and their successor, Siobert the Little, was also a pagan. It was only under his heir, Siobert the Good, that Essex was reconverted. He reigned from 653 to 660-661. Thus, in Essex, the pagan reaction lasted for several generations, while in Kent it was only for a brief interlude. Meanwhile, Britain continued to prosper, but things were about to get very interesting north of the Humber, where in 625, Athelbert's daughter, Athelberg, married a king who had recently managed to return from exile and dethrone his violent predecessor. We'll talk more about him in the next episode, though, when we meet Edwin of Northumbria. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. If you have, and if you've enjoyed previous episodes, once again, I'd like to ask that you leave a positive review, uh, five stars or a like, 
wherever you found it, so that it can help us to get a bit more exposure. Once again though, I'm your host Tom Kearns, and this has been the Anglo-Saxon England podcast. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.